Have you ever felt it? That excitement, that hum, that reaches into the very base of your stomach and makes your whole body feel alive? Well, your life can feel like that. Each week, I'll be sharing ways your personal wellness journey can lead you to a life that literally makes you hum. We'll be diving into all things nutrition, mindset, connection, spirituality and relationships to encourage you to be courageous and brave with your life and most importantly, unashamedly you. Together, let's find your hum. Welcome to episode 23 of Find Your Hum. In this episode, I'm joined by Jessica Duffin from This Endo Life. And this conversation was honestly amazing. I loved connecting with someone who not only has experienced endometriosis and SIBO like myself, but now also helps women in this area. We really do dive into Jessica's own personal experience with both of these conditions and also how she worked with her clients to allow them to live and thrive with both of these what can be somewhat chronic condition. Jessica is a certified women's health coach who specializes in endometriosis and small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. Her work is centered around empowering people all over the world to live and thrive with endometriosis and its associated conditions using nutrition and holistic lifestyle changes. Whilst experiencing her own endo symptoms, Jessica found relief from taking a natural approach and now shares this with her community. If you would like to connect or work with Jessica, you can check her out at This Endo Life through her website, Instagram, and also on her own podcast, all with the same name. But you can also find links to those in the bio. If you love this episode, please share it on your social media and tag me at the nourishing way underscore and Jessica at this underscore endo life. Now, before we dive into this episode, I have some very exciting news. The Nourishing Ways Foundational Reset launched this week. The Foundational Reset is a two-week reset designed for you to begin to shine again through some increased energy, you begin to understand the language of your body and also start to deepen the connection to your inner world, all with some joy and ease. If you have ever wondered what it might be like to work with me, this is also a lovely way to take a small step into what I do here at The Nourishing Way. Each of the two weeks of the Nourishing Ways Foundational Reset brings in my unique approach as we work with the steps that I take with all my clients. So we go through the strengthen part, which is listening and understanding our body's unique language, the sustain, which is healing our body through whole food nutrition, and nurture, which is where we connect back to our own energy and back to our inner worlds. The Nourishing Way Foundational Reset is so much more than just a meal plan. It really is about setting the foundation for you to shine again. There is so much goodness in this program, but I really wanted it to be affordable, so it is priced at just $22. And you can find more about the Foundational Reset over on the website or through the link in the bio. Jessica, so our listeners get to know a little bit about you. What were you like as a teenager? So I just want to caveat this, that I am very, very different (laughs) from how I was as a teenager. So, um, and I imagine that we all are, um, I think, Um, but 
yeah, so I'm very, very different person. Um, and unfortunately, like my teenage years aren't the happiest story. So I don't know if this is a bit of a deep place to start the podcast on, but it shaped who I, who I am and the work that I do. But um, I, yeah, I wasn't the happiest teenager. Um, I I had developed an eating disorder when I was 11. So um, my entire teenage years, I, I had the eating disorder for about 11 years. Um, and I thankfully didn't have classic endometriosis symptoms, which I'm sure we're going to get into in a moment. Um, but I didn't have like painful periods. My period started quite late. Um, started at like 16. And I think that was in part because I had such low estrogen levels um, and hormone levels from not, you know, barely eating. I just didn't have enough. Um, and so... I did deal with a lot of like symptoms associated with like hormonal imbalances in terms of like a lot of depressive moods, a lot of just, yeah, just kind of a lot of anxiety. Um, and obviously that played in with having a lot of blood sugar dysregulation because I wasn't eating enough. Um, so, and I, I, we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about it, but, um, I didn't know at the time that I had SIBO as well. So, I developed SIBO, which is um, small intestine bacterial overgrowth, which we'll get into, I'm, I'm sure. But that had developed when I was like a child, like about two. And so I was dealing with a lot of those issues. I think I was probably not absorbing nutrients very well. I had a lot of IBS issues um, and a lot of the issues that can like the full body issues that can come with SIBO including chronic fatigue and brain fog and anxiety so um I was just uh, a hotbed of <laughs> yeah. like issues um and I was a very very hard worker um because it was the way that I dealt with having a kind of unhappy home life um so I was yeah I was quite a workaholic and perfectionist and those traits are still with me today though I am working on them um and but I had I had a lot of friends um which was lovely I was really lucky with that um and I grew up to be I guess in the UK we have like quite a big drinking culture so coupling like weekends with not eating very much and and drinking on a friday and saturday night probably wasn't the best best thing for my body when i was like 18 pretty sure um, that's exactly the same as australia <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um and so i was like very outgoing and loud and bubbly in those settings um and then like a really diligent worker <laughs> at school and at college. Um, so yeah, it's that's a really difficult and complicated answer, um, but it's a truth. I, I wouldn't want to paint like a, a, a rainbow picture of a teenage, of teenage years that I didn't have. Um, but, and that's all kind of a very whistle-stop tour, but um, the different, things that I went through um, and different conditions I had and trauma that I had um, has made me the coach that I am today and I don't think I would be doing this line of work at all had I not gone through all of those things. 
Yeah, it's definitely often people come into this line of work having had the experiences themselves. And it's definitely what has brought me into this. And Mm. I also find whilst it's horrible to have to go through that, the compassion that then and empathy and really deep understanding that you can give your clients is absolutely beautiful having gone through that. It is like the silver lining, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And you just have so much life experience, like much more life experience than you should at that age. But you then do have a lot of life experience and that comes with, um, you know, learning and, and wisdom and um, not always, not like you've always made the right decisions, but you learn from your mistakes. Yeah. So um, I think that can be really helpful because you see life from so many different angles and so you're able to um emphasize with so many different clients rather than just seeing something from one point of view yeah absolutely and such a difficult time um to go through all that because like you know as females that hormonal puberty type age is Mm. so just crazy with all the hormones and everything going on anyway with like you said with you know a little bit of depression and anxiety and then the SIBO which we definitely will get on to talking about like adding into that with the fatigue but then you know wanting to do really well and being perfectionist does make that time of life pretty tough doesn't it yeah and I I mean I think it's probably hard for everyone at least that's you know my understanding that teenagers aren't necessarily the easiest years um so I just think I've got, I've, I just had an extreme version. (laughs) (laughs) And like I said, it's obviously silver lining is it definitely lets you relate to your clients now. Yeah, 100%. So you said that you didn't sort of start with endo type symptoms that some people um, have. Like some people Mm. literally get endo from almost the moment they start their periods. So what was your endo story? Yeah, so... Um, like I said, my period didn't start until I was about 16 and I didn't have any, I had no painful periods. Um, I had a, now I know, and I'm trained, I know that I had low estrogen at the time. Um, because I, my period was like a day to two days long and it was like baby pink. It was so pale. Um, so I guess that I just maybe, maybe there wasn't enough going on at that time to, trigger the the cramping and and all of that but um I then had a car accident when I was 17 and I broke my um spine and pubic ramus and pelvis and hips and um and something else oh and ribs but that's not to do with this um and a year later my endo symptoms started and what we know from more recent research is that endometriosis symptoms can be triggered so you might have endometriosis but not feel anything which we know is possible we know that people can have tons of endometriosis but have no symptoms or have very little endometriosis and have all of the symptoms right um but what the research is now showing is that like a trauma um some kind of physical or emotional trauma that makes the brain feel at threat can basically create new pain pathways in the brain that starts to trigger this response from endometriosis so I had didn't have any issues and then a year later after this car accident I started getting painful periods and painful sex um and the period pain was really really excruciating um 
And at the time, you know, still in the midst of an eating disorder, I really didn't care about my body. So I was just taking tons of cocodamol, which wasn't working. Like I'd literally go through like a packet of cocodamol and I'd just be really, really, you know, drowsy. Um, but I didn't, the pain hadn't gone. Um, and then I'd have to go to like, this went on for years as well. So I was having to go to college and then to, to work. Um, just having this awful, like, you know, the cocodamol headache, right? When you stop taking cocodamol, you get an awful headache. So then I'd have this migraine for days afterwards. Um, and it was just, it was just taken over my life because I didn't keep it. I didn't track, track my period. I didn't even know that was a thing. So it felt like it rolled around very quickly and it would really take away a week of my life because the pain would last for I would say like it lasted for about three days like where it was you know day one day two was excruciating third day was was still very painful but you know days four and five they they were much more manageable but the after effects of all of that not having any sleep because it would always come at night um and so I would have no sleep for two to three days I'd be taking all of this cocodamol um, and so those, that was like the symptoms that I presented with, but much later on than most people would. Um, obviously I had really intense bloating, but I had that from when I was a child, which, um, as we're getting to is, is more down to the SIBO, um, than the endometriosis itself. And, um, again, always have had IBS issues, um, which, when you have, when you have um, your period, your body releases prostaglandins, and these are inflammatory chemicals that basically help to stimulate the kind of, kind of cramping and the whole process um, of bleeding, and they can basically cause your bowels to cramp. So if anyone has like diarrhea on their period, that's why. So lowering inflammation overall can help reduce that. But you know, I'd get a lot of like, I'd get really severe diarrhea on my period because at that point my inflammation levels were so high. That's why I was getting these, you know, really excruciating period pains um, and then pain during sex. Um, and then I also had the, you know, the brain fog and the fatigue. I didn't really link those to endometriosis for a number of years after my diagnosis. Um, but it took me about five years to get diagnosed once the symptoms started. And unfortunately at the time, I had no idea about what was um, the best kind of surgery. So I, it was on the NHS. So I had ablation surgery, which just means that the top layer of the endo was burnt off, but the endo cells were still there. Um, so the pain came back a year and a half later, um, if not if not sooner. Um, but <laughs> again, I was I naively went to my doctor at the time, and I was like, "The pain's coming back. Um, it's like really, really bad. It's like a level eight. Should I come back when it's worse? And he was like, yeah, come back when it's excruciating, which was the stupidest thing that I could ask <laughs> because the waiting lists on the NHS are huge. So by the time that I went back, 
I was already suffering so badly. And, and I then think too, to... like if you've had all that pain, your level eight is probably someone else's, yeah. you know, level 15 out of 10. Oh my yeah. Because you yeah. Really, like that endo pain, it's, it's always just something you learn to live around. So, yeah, your pain mm-hmm. would have been, that, that scale would have been totally off for you. Yeah, absolutely. And so the um, once I went back, it was like a six-month waiting list to see the gynecologist. And then it was something like a nine-month waiting list for the operation. Um, and so I was actually due to go sort of traveling in that time. I was going to Cape Town um, because my godfather lived there and he'd passed away. So I was going over there to spend some time with his family. And I saw my gynecologist and said like, you know, I'm supposed to be going away. This is, this is all booked. Basically by the time that I saw them and the time that they said that the appointment would come through and they were like, oh, we can, that's fine. We can defer it. Um, and then I was in Cape town and I started getting these calls and it was the hospital being like, oh, where are you? You're, you know, you're supposed to be in for your pre-surgery appointment. I was like, no I'm not um and they were like the receptionist that I spoke to was just not very nice and basically was like oh well we've taken you we're taking you off the list completely you have to go back to your GP so it took me all the way back to square one and I was really desperate at this point in Cape Town so I just started basically going down rabbit holes of how to manage it naturally myself and then that's how I got into the nutrition piece and lowering inflammation with food. And I did a sort of mini elimination diet whilst I, um, that month, basically, is when I got that call of just no sugar, no caffeine, no gluten and no dairy. Like some of the key, most common, you know, common triggers that some people can be, uh, some people can be inflamed from. And I had a pain-free period. Like from one month of doing this so that kind of started my that started my journey and I did have um another surgery it it took about two years from the point that the pain came back to have a surgery and I waited to see um a specialist who was supposed to do excision but they did a laparoscopy uh, they did ablation whilst I was you know under anesthetic so I had no choice in the matter no. so um that was a bit pointless but I you know I don't need I don't need that now because I'm in in a good place with my endometriosis and and I manage it and my pain you know I either have pain-free periods or for some reason say if I'm stressed or I have I don't know like maybe I've had some a lot of caffeine that month then it might be like two to three on the pain scale but most of the time they're pain-free so my endo is really well yeah it is really well managed that's definitely not my my problem area is not endo anymore <laughs> <laughs> I know it's interesting because I never know whether or not to say to people oh I had endometriosis because very similar to you every now and then you'll just get a period that's like oh oh I felt that one mm. um where other times you don't it's like yeah well do you say you had it or you have it and you're just managing it it's so hard with some of those chronic conditions isn't it to sort of understand where you're at with it yeah, I mean, it is difficult because I guess end- endometriosis comes along with like these other components like this, you know, immune dysfunction um, and, you know, just 
these problems in the body that I think even if the endometriosis is excised, does that mean you don't have endometriosis? Like, I don't think we have a definitive answer on that because the the genetic like mutations and and the um, the immune dysfunction would still be there. I would imagine, right? It's not going to go yeah. away just because the endometriosis has been cut out. And I mean, for me, I do still have endometriosis because the um, they did ablation and I my follow-up appointment with them I actually basically wanted to um experiment so I stopped doing like a anti-inflammatory diet and I, I allowed gluten and dairy back into my life post-surgery to see what would happen wasn't good for my IBS issues for sure <laughs> but um the pain just came straight back and I went to see them and I was like, look, it hasn't, it hasn't made a difference. And the, the, um, I didn't see the surgeon. I saw his, like one of his team members and they were like, well, you know, that's because the endometriosis, you know, there's still cells there because we just burnt off the surface. And I was like, what? <laughs> I waited to see an excision specialist. Like, um, so I definitely still have endometriosis there. Um, but, the, but it's not bothering me, you know, um, unless I allow, inflammation to kind of get the better of me but yeah I, I do find that a really interesting subject because because it is a full body disease so I don't know I think we can say it's in remission right because I think yeah. the definition of remission is like your symptoms are no longer like you're not no longer presenting with symptoms but yeah I don't know it's a different yeah one. no it would be and it would be like that for a lot of chronic conditions as well because like you know you see some people that you know, would come to see us and like the endometriosis is extremely present and, you know, they can, it's impacting their lives. And you kind of, I almost feel a little bit like, well, I can't say I've got it because like, mm. look at you, like that is just, you know, yeah, I think remission is, is quite a good word for it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a complex, complex one. I'm sure we'll have more clear answers as time goes on and research develops. Yeah. Well, there was a lot to unpack in that. So I'm actually yeah. going to start, which is great. I love this. Um, I'm going to start with the pain because I think that is mm -hmm. the most common symptom. Although, like you said, some people can have a huge amount of endo and not have any of the pain. And that does really dive into that immune dysregulation and also where it is and the rest of their life and how it's sort of panning out. But for those people that are having pain, Mm -hmm. whilst we're sort of treating the underlying cause of why the pain is there do you have any sort of suggestions on how you managed that pain obviously you did talk about taking the anti-inflammatories but was there anything natural that you found when you were looking for that yeah so um so whilst we're treating the underlying root causes basically like sort yeah. of symptom reduction yeah so um i i guess i <laughs> i learned Late, I was I kind of used myself as a guinea pig so um it's really now that I'm trained that I feel like I found the most effective tools but they're now no longer useful for me but I use them with my clients um so my clients it was really for me like I didn't really have any go-to pain relief things for in the moment it was just actually the changing of the my diet that did it for me but um for my clients who present with a lot of pain to the point where maybe they can't even make progress you know they can't even do the diet changes or the lifestyle changes because they just can't see through the pain um I really love ginger um so ginger root powder rather than fresh root 
that's where the research has been done. But ginger root powder has been shown to be just as effective as methanamic acid and ibuprofen um, for dysmenorrhea. Um, and I think in one study on endometriosis as well, that might be another another herb, but I'm pretty sure it was t um, ginger. And um, it's a really effective pain reliever overall, really powerful anti-inflammatory. And you can you can use the studies that they've done in it they basically have used ginger as a painkiller so um it's 250 milligrams um four times a day uh in in the capsule form but for some of my clients who don't like doing capsules i just tell them to to measure it out and just stir it into hot tea um like you know hot water or almond milk something that doesn't have extra sugar in right because we don't want to kind of trigger an inflammatory response. And so many of my clients, as soon as they start to introduce ginger, they come off all of their painkillers. It happens again and again. It's incredible. Um, so I absolutely love ginger, uh, whether you use that as a supplement or whether you just use that, you know, in something that you're eating that day. Um, I really love using magnesium because we know that magnesium deficiency is very, very common. Um, and it occurs in people who are going through chronic stress or who are losing a lot of blood in their periods. And magnesium deficiency causes like pain, um, worsening pain, PMS, um, body pain. So it might feel like, you know, aches, aches and pains everywhere, chronic fatigue, brain fog. So I see magne magnesium deficiency quite a lot, at least the symptoms with my clients. And they all really respond well to magnesium baths. Um, so the research has shown that 600 grams of Epsom salts in a bath two to three times a week, soaking for a minimum of 10 minutes, has been effective for reducing magnesium deficiency, but also treating symptoms like anxiety and pain. So my clients will either use that like kind of use that method all month long, ideally, right, to get their magnesium levels up. Um, and they feel so much better when they do it. Honestly, they come back to me and in the beginning there's resistance because it's like, oh, but you know, it's just a pain, isn't it, right? To like clean the bath and all of that. But once they do it, they're like, I'm just never not gonna do this. They feel so much better, both in terms of pain levels, but physically like their well-being overall they feel clearer headed they sleep so much better they have more energy because magnesium is also um plays a massive role in energy production so if we're low on magnesium then that might explain the fatigue as well um so magnesium bus and then i also use magnesium spray that is one that i use personally now actually because um I have interstitial cystitis, which is a bladder pain condition. And so if that's bad, I spray magnesium on my um, pelvis. And and if I ever do have a little bit of pain, then I use that and that goes away. And I usually take a bit of ginger and, and the pain goes away. But um, I recommend this to my clients as well. So you can get like a magnesium oil spray um, and do a couple of sprays on your pelvic area and your lower back if you have pain and magnesium is a muscle relaxant so it eases the cramping and the cramping is you know causing the pain um so it just relaxes relaxes the muscles there and that's really effective um cinnamon has also been shown to reduce pain nausea 
and heavy bleeding in people with dysmenorrhea. Um, so often I, you know, my clients will combine like a tea of cinnamon and ginger and turmeric um, and they can find cinnamon really effective as well. Um, BU patches, I don't know if you've heard of them. No, that's like I've come they're, across. They're amazing. Um, so they are like plasters, like strict, like a, a really big plaster that sticks on your abdomen or your lower back and they're completely natural and they have eucalyptus and menthol oil. Oh, um, actually, I them. have. My auntie actually uses them for back pain. Oh, right. Yeah, they're yes. great. And they release, like, the oil over, like, 12 hours so that um, basically you're just having cramp relief this time. And they're really discreet. So my clients love them. I love them. Again, I use them for my IC. And so I find those really effective and an affordable way to lower pain in in the moment these are sort of i mean the magnesium and the ginger you can definitely do all month long but if we're thinking about in the moment pain you could use all of these for in the moment pain um infrared heat belts um are like sort of a new concept but infrared is very healing and lowers inflammation and you can now get um infrared light therapy and, you know, you can get, like, infrared saunas. Um, there are companies now doing, like, infrared heat belts. So you just put it around your pelvis if, you know, if someone has backache or period pain. Um, and I think that can be a more gentle approach to... And, and a more effective approach to a hot water bottle because you're not doing the damage of burning your skin um, and you've got these anti-inflammatory properties of the infrared light. Um, so that's obviously really helpful. And then if someone has the energy and can move I find that there are certain yoga sequences specially designed for period pain pelvic pain and and endometriosis there are a few go-to videos that I like on YouTube and a few programs um what's it called I think there's I think there's literally a website called yoga for endometriosis that I point my clients to um and just using those yoga moves doesn't necessarily stop the brain stop the pain but it distracts the brain and it sends a brain calm and safety signal so the brain calms down and you sort of focus less on the pain so yeah those are really the go-to um i have like a pain relief toolkit that people can download for free if they want to read more on these and they want to look on at the studies that i've mentioned but those are some of my favorites i think the best thing about the bath too is when we are so consumed with the pain and just getting through it, and like with some people, and like you said, when you have pain for a long time or you've got a bit of PMS leading into it, it can literally feel like your period and all that leading. Is it like sort of 10 to up to 14 days of a month? You can just yeah. be like, you know, done for. It doesn't leave you a lot of time for a lot of self-love. So that bath time would just be heaven for just connecting back and spending some time on you yeah absolutely and it is it is so powerful but I appreciate that there are blocks to that I think just because it feels time consuming so I was speaking to someone yesterday and they were saying that you know it's more effective if you sit in the bath but you can use a foot bath as well and um yeah I was talking to a practitioner yesterday who says that she always uses magnesium foot baths while she's working hmm. so she just puts her feet in while she's working for like 30 minutes so I would imagine you do need to sit like you do need to submerge your feet for longer because it's a smaller surface area right than your whole body yeah 
And um, with the magnesium too, I found that um, like taking it supplement supplementary, <laughs> I can't even get my words out, um, the um, magnesium glycinate has worked really well because actually basically really good for cramps. So mm. I know in previous work and stuff I've done, I've worked with a lot of athletes and used to give it to them when they used to cramp. And I found oh, it works, wow. yeah, very effective as well for my endo patients. Again, it's something that you take all months long, that one, you would, because that way mm. it sort of builds up in your body and that has just eased some of the, the cramps as well. So that's also a really nice one. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're so right with that. I actually forgot to, to mention that, that I, you know, you can take a fair amount of magnesium. So if you do take it orally, a lot of my clients struggle with absorption. So just generally of lots of different nutrients. So I try to use alternatives to absorb magnesium, but um, I do find that if you take magnesium orally, um, similar to how you're taking ginger on the day of your period, it can definitely reduce cramping. So totally with you there. Yeah. Um, so let's go into all this coexisting conditions that we mm -hmm. see with endo because unfortunately it's never just the endo is it no it, <laughs> I feel like that's becoming my catchphrase like it's never just the endo um yeah I totally totally agree with you um I mean I can give you kind of like a overview of some of the most common ones that that I see um there are definitely others as well but the most common ones that I see in my practice are SIBO which we do know um in the research so far it's not huge research but the research shows so far is showing that 80% of people with endometriosis have SIBO um and SIBO is so it's small intestine bacterial overgrowth and what that means is if you think about your gut microbiome, you know when someone talks about um, having a happy gut or a healthy gut, they're really talking about the bacteria in your large intestine. Your small intestine shouldn't actually have um, that much bacteria in it. It's just a small amount of bacteria in your, in your small intestine. Most of your nutrient absorption occurs in your small intestine. Not all of it, but most of it. And what can happen is something occurs so there's damage to um the small intestine in some form that basically causes an accumulation of bacteria in the small intestine where it should be in the large in the large intestine and because the small intestine is not designed to house all of that bacteria it causes things like um bloating because obviously bacteria ferments our food whilst we're eating and then the gas that is released from the bacteria there are three types of gas that are released from these bacteria the bacteria in SIBO hydrogen methane and hydrogen sulfide um they cause problems and they cause problems like diarrhea constipation anxiety neural damage brain fog chronic fatigue gas, acid reflux, bloating, all of these issues. Um, and they, and because they can, hydrogen sulfide particularly, can cause neural damage, it can cause things like tingling in the arms and legs, um, interstitial cystitis symptoms, really, really common with hydrogen sulfide type SIBO. Um, and, and also interstitial cystitis is just an, an associated co-condition of SIBO as well. Uh, it's really prevalent within that community. Um, so 
It comes with a lot of problems and it often causes leaky gut, which is when the gut lining, um, which is basically stopping food from seeping through into the rest of your body, right? Um, It starts to get holes in it that allow bacteria and pieces of food to pass through the gut lining. And then that triggers an immune response because the immune system is waiting on the other side, ready to attack any viruses or baddies that might come through the gut lining. It's there to protect us, but then it will attack anything that comes through that shouldn't be there. So if like lumps of food come through that shouldn't be there, then it's gonna attack those. So that's how we can start to develop, you know, sensitivities and we get an upregulated inflammatory response because the in- inflammation is a normal protective healing response from the body. But when it's happening all the time, every time you eat, that's when it becomes a problem and it becomes chronic. Um, so SIBO comes with a lot of complications and um, it can also cause nutrient deficiencies like B12, iron, protein. So those, you know, nutrient deficiencies can worsen our um, our health as well and worsen symptoms of endo too. So that's one of the major issues that I see um, in almost all of my clients. Then I see histamine intolerance quite a lot as well. Um, and histamines are part of the immune immune response as well. They are the white, the kind of the cells that respond to allergens like pollen um, or some, you know, anything that you're kind of allergic to. And so what happens with endometriosis is there's, I mean, there's a couple of things going on here. If you have SIBO or you have a gut health condition that can affect your ability to break down um, histamine. And so you then start to get histamine intolerant symptoms, which could, I mean, they really, really vary, but it could just be that you have like heightened response to hay fever, you know, um, dust, like you're just, you've always got a runny nose, you're always sneezing, um, you've always got itchy eyes, maybe you feel quite puffy in the face, like, and, but then it can also cause things like diarrhea and vomiting, nausea, brain fog, fatigue, racing heart, heart palpitations, um, bladder pain is a really big one. So histamine intolerance has the ability to make you feel really ill. And I've actually someone... found that um, the histamine has been a driver of some of my clients that come to me for hormonal issues. It's literally the mm. histamine that have been driving the menstrual problems. Once we've got that under wraps, yes. it's actually cleared up. And I don't think a lot of people would naturally link those two together but then once you know histamine and the estrogen like link you can kind of see why but yeah they may not have any hay fever symptoms like none of the other stuff it literally is just the menstrual and that's how it's um presenting it's it's a big one i think that most people don't give enough credit for that histamine i totally agree because um like you just said estrogen triggers the um kind of production of histamine but then histamine also upregulates <laughs> estrogen yep. and that's a problem with people with endometriosis because one of the drivers of endometriosis is estrogen now that's not the case with all endometriosis cells they've now they've now found that some of the endo cells don't have estrogen receptors um in more recent research but most most of the studies are pointing to estrogen being a, a really big driver for the majority of us but then we've got um, 
LPS as a driver and prostaglandin E2. But with estrogen, we have a higher um, level of estrogen in our in the endometriosis lesions. Um, and we also have a higher level of mast cells in the lesions. And mast cells are the cells that release histamine. So they're in the lesions too, and they're more active. So they're kind of like hypersensitive mast cells that are like firing out histamine in higher levels. And then you've got estrogen there as well. You've got endometriosis making its own estrogen. So these histamine levels and estrogen levels are just bouncing off each other, kind of worsening the scenario. Um, and often, like exactly what you you were saying, um, I see clients who have a lot of vomiting and nausea and cramping on their periods. And I think a big part of that vomiting and that nausea is down to the histamine because histamine is released during menstruation as well. You know, it, obviously it plays a role with allergies, but it plays a role in lots of other, lots of other things, including being released during menstruation. So if we've already got high levels of histamines in that pelvic cavity anyway, um, and if our body's not breaking down histamine properly, and that there are numerous reasons as well why you might be making more histamine in general, um, then definitely I think that's going to be messing around with your hormones and um, what your symptoms might look like around your period for sure. And we literally just become a red hot mess. Like mm -hmm. you can absolutely see why it happens. Yeah. And if if you have interstitial cystitis as well, they found that people with interstitial cystitis have higher levels of histamine inside the bladder too. So it's um it's a whole it's a it's a really complex area I think um and it requires kind of gut I don't know about you but I kind of take the approach of of healing the gut um and obviously removing triggers to calm down that histamine reaction yeah absolutely taking out the histamine foods for a while. and again it doesn't have to be forever I find a lot of my clients once we've taken it out but again with the gut healing anything like removing any foods we need to yeah always address the underlying problems so you can yeah. pop them back in again it's not just about taking those foods out forever yeah yeah absolutely so you can live your life again as someone who's been like I have quite complicated histamine intolerance issues um that I've been working on for a, just over a year now and um, I still can't bring in that many foods yet because I'm still treating my SIBO. Um, and I really miss, like, oh, sometimes my food feels so bland. I'm just like, oh my God, I just want some spice. I just want some paprika. Yeah, yeah. Just want some yogurt. Are you finding with the SIBO that it has been um, quite a difficult journey? Because that is another very chronic condition. Like people think mm. obviously endo is and then you've got this other chronic condition of SIBO on top, which, and again, like we, you've just ex very well explained, they totally feed into each other. Yeah. It can be quite of a challenge. I I think I could have gone down an easier route, but I wanted to sort of experiment on myself as well. Um, and so... Obviously, I, I'm I'm trained in SIBO. I um, trained with Dr. Alison Seebecker. And so I kind of wanted to test different approaches. So um, I was diagnosed in, I think it was last March. And I didn't start treating myself until October because I really wanted to go down 
I wanted to be in a really good headspace for it. Um, and I couldn't start that treatment whilst I was, I was in the middle of like coaching and I just wanted to be strong enough to take it on because I knew it was going to be a long journey. Um, and so I do think that when you're going down the road of SIBO that you need to be in a place where you have the emotional and physical strength to do that. And I wouldn't necessarily say that at the beginning of your endo healing journey is where you should dive in with a SIBO as well. I would probably kind of get going with some traction first, like get yourself to, you know, thankfully I'm not battling painful periods anymore, you know, or, or chronic pelvic pain every day. Um, so I, yeah, I waited to get to that point and then kind of, where I had the headspace to to deal with it. And I went down the route of antimicrobials first. Um, and I'm on my third round of antimicrobials and then I'm moving on to the elemental diet um, in a couple of weeks. And so I'm sure your listeners know, but antimicrobials reduce um, SIBO on average by 30 parts per million, which is our measurement of gas. Um, but, so my levels weren't crazy high actually. Um, but again, like with endo, you don't have to have loads of SIBO to have loads of symptoms. The symptoms and the amount doesn't correlate. Um, so my levels weren't that that high. I think combined I was at 64. So 64 parts per million. So you could reduce, you, you have a bit of an idea, right? Like, okay, at minimum, I'm probably going to need two, two, two or three rounds to get this down of antimicrobials because they reduce by 30 parts per million. But on average, most people need a minimum of three rounds um, of treatment because SIBO is tricky to treat. And if you have methane and hydrogen sulfide, both of those are much trickier to treat um, and they can often be resistant to some of the treatments and you might just be resistant to some of the treatments. Like there are so many different antimicrobials and um antibiotics you just might not work with one but you work better with the other so um I think that some of the antimicrobials that I took worked well I think some of them weren't as effective for me um but I wanted to do three three rounds as a minimum and then retest you should ideally in an ideal world if you had the money retest after every treatment round to see what you know see what was working for you that's a really good way to keep track of what's working for you I don't think my SIBO has gone yet um I think what is probably happening is that I have pissed off methanogen syndrome which is when when your methane is dying it basically decides to overgrow in attempt to survive so often what you'll see is if you're treating methane, it gets worse before it gets better. And I think that's probably what's happening to me. And because I can't test for hydrogen sulfide in the UK, we can in the US now, thankfully. Um, but I've spoken to Dr. Alison Seabeck and both in agreement that I likely have hydrogen sulfide as well. I don't know what my levels are for hydrogen sulfide. They could be 120, you know? So, um, but I really don't feel like I'm I'm near the end. Um, so I want to give the elemental diet a go now because I've given free treatment rounds to antimicrobials so I can really speak from experience on on those now um and I would like to try the elemental diet so I can give my clients feedback personal feedback on that um I'm not trying antibiotics simply because it's really hard to get 
the ones that you need for SIBO from the NHS and most NHS doctors don't know what SIBO is or don't believe in it right now so I'm not trying that and I don't really work with um unless I unless my client goes to see a private um doctor who can prescribe it I don't really work with antibiotics not because I don't believe in them for SIBO because they may be necessary for SIBO um but just because I don't really have the access to get them for myself so um I'm trying these two two routes and I most commonly work with those with my clients um so I I don't feel like it's been a struggle in the sense of like oh I haven't I haven't healed yet because I didn't expect to be healed yet yeah you know I I expected it to be a free month like free treatment rounds at a minimum yeah um and then the prokinetics which basically support the migrating motor complex um which clears bacteria from the small intestine to the large intestine the prokinetics you can either take a pharmaceutical or supplement or a supplement form um and again i'm using natural supplement form because i can easily access those for myself and my clients um you take those between your treatment breaks you do two week treatment breaks between treatments most of the time unless you've got a really severe case and you want to go back to back but i'm doing the treatment breaks and i have had challenges with the prokinetics because most of the natural ones contain ginger um which is great but i actually have to be really careful with ginger because it burns my bladder <laughs> so because i've got interstitial cystitis which is in largely largely down to my SIBO um when I was taking the prokinetics, I was really like not getting much sleep at all because my bladder was burning throughout the night. Um, but I've played around with different prokinetics now and I think I found like a good combination for me. So it has, there's been trial and error, but um, that's, that is definitely part, that's definitely part of it. Um, and so I wouldn't say it's like a, I wouldn't say it's a struggle, but it's it's a process. Um, and, you know, relapse is very common. Like you said, like two, you know, two thirds of people with SIBO, it's chronic for, but that doesn't mean you can't live well. Um, so the relapse period is between two months and a year. So I expect I will relapse when I get that all clear. Um, and then I will, then if I do, then I start looking further into root cause. But I think I know what my root causes are. Um, because I had gastroenteritis when I was a child. So um, I have my migrating motor complex is damaged, which basically means that I'm getting bacteria accumulating in my in my small intestine. And so that might be something that I can't ever fully cure and I might just need a support for the rest of my life. And that will keep the SIBO at bay. Um, but it doesn't mean that that's going to be really extensive or really difficult to do. People can live with chronic SIBO and absorb their nutrients and live well. Um, and that's where I'll get to. And I am starting visceral manipulation soon to break down adhesions from surgery because any kind of structural issue like adhesions can also affect, um, your small intestine and lead to bacteria accumulating. So, because I'm nearing the end of my treatment, I'm going to be starting visceral manipulation soon. I think you bring up a couple of really good points there, particularly around the being ready for the treatment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's with any like chronic condition or condition that's going to be a bit of a dietary lifestyle type change compared to what you're used to. 
you definitely need to be in a place to be able to tackle that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. I know myself, I think I stopped and started my SIBO treatment about three or four times um, just because I'm actually like, do you know what? I just can't do this right now. And Mm. it's totally fine that people do that. And I think that's a really big thing that people need to hear. Like if you are not particularly ready for it just yet, that is okay. Just get yourself in the position where you are strong enough and mentally headspace-wise probably the most so to be able to tackle it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I had barely slept in a year because of my IC, so I just knew I needed to get to a bit of a better place um, before I did that. And it's something that I've been talking to my course students about at the moment um, because we are going to cover SIBO, but it's actually the last module. I, I do like a whole, if they get a positive diagnosis, I do, I've got a whole module on that. Um, and one of one of them watched my Instagram live that I did recently. I did an update on my SIBO treatment because people were asking and she started, she started panicking because she was like, I think I've got SIBO and this just feels impossible. And, you know, she just was like, I just don't know how I'm going to do this. Like she's really, really panicked and, um, felt really overwhelmed. And I, I had a chat with her and um, and the rest of the group, I jumped on a live to talk to them. And I was like, firstly, you know, that's my personal experience. Um, and it's only half the story. You'll, you'll get the full picture in the module. But, um, you know, they, they're only a couple of modules in to the course. Um, and really get into grips with lowering inflammation through really nutrient dense food and balancing your blood sugar for better energy and better menstrual cycles and better periods and less pain. Um, Just those are fairly, fairly simple, but can be time consuming and can take time to get used to. Um, Strategies that I see work absolute wonders with people. So even if you spend just a year learning how to eat a really nutrient dense diet and how to balance your blood sugar um and maybe you took some supportive supplements like fish oil and curcumin you know and you did that and you just got yourself strong over a year then maybe you could look at gut healing later on down the line now i there are basic gut healing protocols that you can definitely do and i take all of all of my clients to do through if they're open to it and you'll most likely feel benefits with those as well you don't have to dive into the deep end with SIBO treatment or or candida treatment really I would say get your kind of foundations in place first because um you could do all of this extensive treatment but if you're really really stressed or if you're you know not eating for blood sugar balance you're probably going to feel anxious all the time and your energy levels are going to be all over the place and if you're eating a really inflammatory diet you're probably going to be having a lot of pain as well so we can see some incredible changes with just these simple strategies in the beginning um and the we spend about the first with my one-to-one clients we spend like the first month or two working on those and most of them end up having significant pain reduction or pain-free periods just in that period of time so I don't want anyone what this um what my student was saying was that she was like oh 
I feel like I have to make this massive change with SIBO in order to feel benefits. And I was like, no, 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 you don't. SIBOs are really important to address at some stage, but you can experience so much benefit and feel so much better by just making sure that your foundations, you're sleeping well, you're hydrating, you know, you're looking after your nutrition, you know, those basic things can make you feel so much better. Um, And I see leads to lower pain time and time again, and, you know, more energy and better periods and less brain fog. And taking down the inflammation overall, like, yes, obviously we're focusing the inflammation on particularly having a nice menstrual cycle but when you're addressing inflammation you're addressing in the whole body so that is also throughout the gut so by doing the things that help you be pain-free during your menstrual cycle you're actually also helping your gut like get rid of some of that inflammation which again then just makes the SIBO treatment a little bit easier too because you're not already dealing with that inflamed gut so yeah you definitely can do it step by step and do it easy like it's I always say I know the word journey is always like banded around but it is it's your Mm. health journey and I think that's what it comes down to is it's for you and it has to work for you because there is no way if you're going into especially something like a or anything like really going into menstrual with the inflammation or gut healing and you have stress around doing it that stress is going to have more of an impact than not doing anything because yeah stress is such a key driver to a lot of inflammation and immune activity so we just we need to for it to be as stress-free as possible yeah yeah I totally agree I did a a low histamine and low oxalate um elimination diet for my interstitial cystitis and I had a lot of stress going on at the time but the elimination diet was just so intense it was really really intense it was so restrictive and my bladder pain got 10 times worse it got so bad um and it was just because it was because of the stress so because I just couldn't I couldn't juggle this very very intense elimination diet whilst also in the middle of quite a stressful time at work so um yeah I I, I'm absolutely on board with you there I think it's good too like when people like us say it, like we know exactly what we're doing around all these things. Like Mm -hmm. we help other people do it and we can even get a little bit stressed and overwhelmed by it. So it's perfectly normal for anyone else to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just celebrate your wins as you go. Like those, those little wins, like make sure that you acknowledge them along the way and that you're looking at like the next step in front of you rather than always looking ahead at like, the long road because that can feel definitely overwhelming but if you're celebrating each win if your pain shifts down you know by one on the pain scale or if your energy feels a little bit better even if it's just one part of the day celebrate that because you have managed to do that and it's all accumulative it's going to build it's going to accumulate into you feeling better over time it might not be an overnight thing where you're suddenly you know superhuman but um all of these small wins will add up in the long run and will motivate you going forward as you go down that journey and I always um, my auntie actually gave me this piece of advice that when you make that first step rather than thinking oh I've got a year till I feel better or three Mm -hmm. months or two years 
and you keep looking away, just look, you're actually now one step closer to feeling better rather than oh, I've got all these other things. Yep. Yeah. And you might take a couple steps back again at different times, but you still are getting that one step closer. And that was something that I've, I've always held on to. And I love that. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely, I'm going to remember that. That's really helpful. When my SIBO <laughs> treatment gets hard, I'm going to remember it. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, I was, when I had done it and stopped and started a couple of rounds of it and it was just like, oh, because it is like, I love food. I love making lots of food. Like you said, with the spices mm-hmm. and stuff, like food should be about, you know, enjoying it and loving it and vibrancy. And you do have to go on to, you know, taking out some foods. And again, it's only for a short amount of time, but yeah, I just got my getting all caught up in the not be, what I couldn't eat. And she was yeah. like, no, no, just focus on all the things that you can and know that rather than thinking, oh, I've got three months of this diet to do, rather yeah. than going, well, actually, I'm one day down, I'm two days down. And I'm like, yeah, definitely help me get through it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can definitely, I'd love to talk to you about this, like a- another time to hear your experience, but people can take different um, approaches with a SIBO diet. You know, if they wanted to do the biphasic, which was designed to start before the antimicrobial treatment to help prevent die-off, then you tend to be on that diet for longer because say if you did free treatment rounds and then you started um, the biphasic like four, six to four weeks before that treatment and then you have to bring in treat, then you have to bring in diet after the treatment as well as part of the prevention of relapse phase for a couple of months um you expand to tolerance as quickly as you can but that can feel like quite a lot to do and i was just when i considered it i was like you know what because of this histamine and oxalate issue i had i was just done with elimination i was like you know what i've lived with my SIBO symptoms for so long and you can bring in you can basically bring in diet before during but where you have to bring it in is afterwards in that prevention phase um, to prevent rapid relapse. Um, and so I, and really, I mean, at least Dr. Seebecker, she advises like, if someone is very symptomatic and really struggling, you bring in the diet, you know, before or during the treatment. And for me, because I'm just treating myself, I was like, you know, I can deal with what I already have, my symptoms, I'll bring in the, I'll bring in the diet at the end. Once I've finished my treatment, then I'm gonna bring in the diet because I've been doing my treatment since October and I do not want to be on a biphasic <laughs> diet or a SIBO specific diet for that long. Um, thankfully, there are amazing cookbooks for it now. And so you can always get creative, but I just, I'm not really in the, in I don't really have the time to dedicate to all of that new learning of new cooking right now. It was the best decision for me to bring in the, tr- the diet after treatment. So again, I hope that that gives a little bit of a reality check to anyone who's listening who thinks they have to do it perfectly that you can play around with the protocols to adapt to your lifestyle would you would you agree does that make sense yeah absolutely and I think that's why working with someone um, can be really helpful because we can look at your lifestyle give you some suggestions give you some pointers on what will be the best way forward given what you've already gone through and then our own experience having been through one or the other or all of them. Mm. Yeah. And I think that makes it so much easier when you're going through that to, you know, have some helping hands to take away some of those almost decisions for you um, to help guide you because it does. Otherwise you can get caught up in all the possibilities. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. We will definitely have to do a part two, maybe just on SIBO. <laughs> yeah, um, it, SIBO is such a huge topic. I'm like, I have to write this like bonus module on SIBO. I'm like, this is a course. This isn't actually a whole other course. <laughs> it's yeah. not just a module. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay, so we are just pretty much going oops, right over time. Um, but before I finish up with the final questions, I do mm -hmm. want to ask you, what is the biggest misconception that you found with endometriosis? So very similar to what you said um, is that I feel like because we're told that endometriosis is a chronic condition and it has this kind of it has its official list of symptoms, right? But then it has also all of these symptoms that people with endometriosis report um, that we're just kind of told, oh, well, that's just endo and you just have to live with it. And so I think it stops people from investigating what else might be going on. Um, so people just assume that all of their symptoms are down to endo or that there can't be any other factors that could be contributing to the symptoms whereas you know i haven't even mentioned all of them but i see SIBO, histamine intolerance pelvic floor dysfunction hpa axis dysregulation celiac disease um interstitial cystitis those are all commonly associated with endometriosis and so estrogen dominance right or low progesterone those can all be contributing or worsening or solely responsible for some of the symptoms that someone is having adhesions too, right, from surgery. So what I'm really trying to drive home with my work is that don't just assume that you have to live with these symptoms and that they all just belong to endometriosis and there's nothing that you can do about it. They may well be associated to endometriosis or um, indirectly caused by endometriosis, like the adhesions, for example, but it doesn't mean that it's just like, oh, I have endo and that, this is it. This is my life now. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Endo is not a life sentence. No, not at all. So um, just, I just want to say to people, just don't stop asking and investigating. Um, you might have to go down a bit of an alternative route, but it's worth it. And there are plenty of people like you out there that can help you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> Okay, so before the final questions, um, can you let listeners where they know where they can find you, um, how they can work with you and anything that you've got coming up? Yeah, so um, my website is called thisendolife.com and I have a podcast under the same name and that's a mix of interviews and solo shows. And then my Instagram is at this underscore endolife and um, I also write for endometriosis net and endometriosis news unfortunately endometriosis news are um they're basically being archived which means they're not going to update the website but there are hundreds of my articles because i wrote weekly for them for four weeks for four months four years oh my gosh <laughs> for four years i wrote for them weekly so there are plenty of articles um that you can read through and then I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. So you can find that on my website under the coaching page. And I have a 10-week um, online coaching program. And that's a group coaching program where you're taking a course, you know, and, and then I do live calls every week with a group. Um, and that 
I'm currently teaching at the moment, but it's being released again in late spring, summer, and that's called Live and Thrive with Endo. So you can get onto the waiting list um, onto that now. So I, I can give you the link for the waiting list. Perfect. And um, there's a there's a waiting list for one-to-one clients at the moment, but I'll be opening up um, at around the same time for them. So this is a good time to kind of book in for a consultation and we can get you on the list if, if I feel like the right match for you. Perfect. And final questions. How do you sustain, strengthen and nurture your life? So um, I've been thinking about that since you asked it. It's a really interesting question um, because I've just been so, so busy. I, I feel like we've been split during COVID, right, between people who have not been able to work and then people who are suddenly like influxed with lots of stuff to do. Yeah. And so it has been a real struggle for me to find any me time. But what I am trying to do is kind of get back to my, what I always used to do, which was, you know, daily meditation, even just five minutes. Um, I always eat well, like I, that just needs, um, with, with good is thrown in. Um, and I always endeavor to get good sleep. It can be interrupted from my interstitial cystitis, but um, I'm doing much better with that now. And really sleep, we could do a whole episode on sleep and, and the effects of it, but s- without sleep, that's when I feel the most like, just all things really, just more fragile, more I can't think clearly, um, my moods are lower. So good sleep is really important to me. So, um, you know, I just try to lower the lights at night I'm wearing blue light blocking glasses I have on some relaxing music and it's not always that picture perfect wellness you know vision that you might have it doesn't always look like that sometimes I'm having to work late but um I do try to get good sleep as often as I can um I love experimenting with exciting recipes because just because you eat for endo doesn't mean you can't eat delicious foods so um my boyfriend just cracked how to make gluten-free, blood sugar balancing, sugar-free and dairy-free digestives at the weekend. So I'm loving those at the moment um, because I've been wanting some digestives for ages. Um, So I really love making blood sugar balancing like recipes and endo-friendly recipes. That's like, I just, yeah, love baking cakes like that and stuff. Um, I love Jane Austen, just like escaping into period drama like romance or kind of like fantasy like magic like harry potter that i I need a bit of escapism sometimes and that's where i find that um and i really enjoy connecting with others in my field like with you and i'm currently um training with nicole jodim and so all of the other students in that group it just feels really nourishing because i think sometimes um you know, when you're a coach or a nutritionist, you're just often working behind a desk. Like I see my clients on Zoom. So it can be really nice to, you don't nec- you don't have like colleagues, right? You don't have like no. a team. So it can be really nice to connect with others in in our field. I just feel really nurtured by that. I don't, I, it just, I don't know, it really fills me up. Yeah, exactly. Because you, what's connecting with like-minded people, isn't it? Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's really nice. Well, I feel like you've also answered the next one, which is what are you currently doing in your life to find your hum? And But it seems like all of that would also just absolutely fill you up as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that I've added in recently is um, I've started um, a program called Restore Your Core. I literally started it yesterday. And because I've had to stop, essentially stop exercising because of my bladder dysfunction um, and I have, I've not been able to see my pelvic floor physiotherapist. I'm just like, I don't know what exercise to do. It's ridiculous. So I've started this Restore Your Core program, which is exercise that is pelvic floor friendly and for people with tight pelvic floor, which is what I have. Um, and so I think that's really important because movement is just a huge part of health and it hasn't felt good not doing it recently. So, um, yeah, so I hope that that will help me find my home. Oh, lovely. I think movement too. If I, even just sitting for too long, just feel mm-hmm. a little bit ropey afterwards. It's so nice to be able to get up and move. Yeah, absolutely. And I am def- I would like to get a stand on the desk at some point. They're expensive, but I'd love to get one at some point because I feel like sitting too much is just not helpful for that pelvic area in general. Oh, no, not at all. All right. Thank you very much for this, Jessica. I have loved this chat and thank you very much for giving me your time. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure. And yeah, I feel like we have lots to talk about in the future about SIBO. (laughs) Absolutely. I will definitely be getting you back on for part two. Thank you. Cheers for tuning in to another episode of Find Your Hum. Don't forget to subscribe. Oh, and tell your mates about it.